Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Um, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, that we're here with you. Um, you know, it's been over a week now that, um, you know, Sheikh has been really struggling with pain. I know he's embarrassed when I talk about the suffering, um, but I feel like it's a really important thing to hear and to understand um, because, you know, as I've said before in my, in my, um, weekly email and other communications and here is that it's it's truly a test not just for the individual but for the people around him and the people who care about him and the people you know in the community and certainly I think larger um, the Muslim community um, and you know it's been it feels like it's been a long time because um, on the one hand it's like everything else but the time goes by very quickly you sort of lose track of time but uh, you know, it's also a very long period of time because suffering is is extremely um, tedious and you know um, tiring, um, very draining, very lonely. Um, and so you know, we now have missed two khutbahs, um, and but we've managed, alhamdulillah, to try and really um, preserve the you know the ability to come together for these halakas. And you know, like. Everything that we learn in these halakas, um, this is an opportunity for us to really reflect, right? I mean, illness is a time for, for each of us to reflect. Um, and, you know, like I, when I think about the stories of the prophets, for example, that we've been learning about, and how much suffering um, each of the prophets had gone through in their own time, um, and the constant, you know, mantra that the Sheikh says about how people used to take the Quran much more seriously. You know, we do this when we're studying these lines, we're, we're like really examining what the message was here. We go into fine detail over things that most Muslims might gloss over when they're reading the Quran. And I think we cannot help but really think about the amount of suffering for people who are delivering God's message. And I, I take that, you know, as a, as a really, um, you know, a really important lesson for us to learn. Someone here asked me, you know, because you often start thinking about like, okay, why the suffering? Why now? What's going on? What's causing this? Um, you know, and one of the, the, the people asked me here, do you think that this is because we're, we haven't been grateful enough for what the Sheikh has given us? And, you know, I, you know, I said, I don't know. I mean, I think there are lessons for each of us to learn um, no one really quite knows the answer. I think that it's a different lesson for each of us. Each individual has their own lessons to learn about what they, they you know, can and can't do, their level of gratitude. I mean, it might be something completely different. And it, it isn't necessarily just lessons for people here that are in our immediate midst, but maybe people out there who are paying attention or, or watching um, or thinking about, you know, how these holocausts have affected them. Um, I know that, um, the sheikh had, and one of, you know, he, just to convey again in my testimony is like, if you saw the amount of pain that he goes through, like literally around the clock, I mean, I think when we come here, God gives him the medhead, you know, the, the, the assistance, the help, the, the temporary lift from pain, because, you know, like literally right until a very short amount of time before we do these halakas, he's bedridden. I mean, he's been bedridden pretty much the entire time since we like were canceling halakas and I mean khutbahs and, and such. And God, alhamdulillah, gives him enough strength to get out of bed and come here and deliver this halakha to us. Um, and 
you know, like I even think about like, okay, if I were in that amount of pain, or any, I think, anyone, any mere mortal were in that amount of pain, you, you would just call it a day, it would be done, it would be over. And, um, but when I see like what he goes through all the way into the evening, you know, and then to arrive here, it's truly from, um, you know, from a commitment to, to delivering, I think, the, like a very, what we have all come to understand is a very important message. Um, and I and sometimes when he is in delirium and in pain and you know um, you're sitting by feeling helpless, um, you know interestingly you know he'll he'll oftentimes start to tell stories and things like that too. Um, but there was one one dream actually that I thought that I would share. Um, he he dreamt of a very dear friend um, who died in prison um, under torture, and he said to his friend you know, why so much suffering, you know? And his friend said to him, so you would understand. All of his suffering, so you would understand. And he understood that that message meant that so you would understand the seriousness of what we're doing and the seriousness of this message. And he can't say this, but I can't. I believe that what we're doing here is so important. Imagine us not having these holocausts. You know, I mean, it's, the chutbahs are transformative as it is, but imagine if we didn't have this window into understanding the Quran in the way that we do. What an incredible loss. And so you understand then why the sacrifice, why the suffering, why, you know, despite everything, people here are stepping up to try and help, you know, with everything that they can. Um, to you know, certainly um, help our experience right now with pain and illness a little easier to handle, um, and I'm so grateful for that. Honestly, you know, we've been in many situations that I've said before where there were really not that many people around to help, and so every little bit helps. And um, and I also take you know into consideration what we learned in Daryat, which is everyone has a role to play, right? And so I've certainly learned that different people play different roles. Um, you know, whether it's praying from afar or whether you know, people are better at you know, joking and lifting the mood, other people are better at you know, constantly reading Quran. Every single role is critically important. And I think that God wants to see when we're put in this test, what are people doing? Are they stepping up? Are they doing everything that they can? Are they thinking about what are the lessons to be learned? You, know, you can't help but think about you know, what if this person was not here? What about people I love? What about myself? What if I'm ill like this? What, what can I do? You know, I mean, there's just so many different kinds of lessons to be learned. And I think that this is just an opportunity to you know, really reflect on what can I personally do um, to anything, you know, to help Sheikh or to just be a better person in my own life that might have nothing to do with Sheikh. Um, so it's, you know, I, um, I, again, I just, you know, more, more sort of stories from the sidelines of pain because when you're helpless and, you know, the other thing is you realize, really realize that so much really is left to, to God and trusting in God because you, there's so little that you can do, but um, I do believe that when you ask God for help and, you know, God will answer your prayer in, in very specific ways and um, so it's a chance to draw closer to God, not be angry, not be resentful, not be bitter, um, always to be grateful, because there's always something to think about that you can be grateful for in the midst of, of all of this suffering and uh, potential for learning. So, but I, I know that, you know, for all of the suffering that I've seen um, from Sheikh, this, 
is truly an incredible effort, something that I think very few people would be able to tolerate, would be able, would be, you know, very few people would be able to handle. And most people would not get up after suffering, you know, 24 seven pain in bed, screaming, you know, just, there's nothing to stop it except prayer. And then still get up and be ready to deliver the halakha and to all of us and hopefully for the future. So um, just, you know, to express my gratitude and, and just to testify so people who aren't here and who haven't seen it and who don't know what's happening here can better understand that it's, it's, it's a really hard slog, it's a really hard fight, um, and, and Sheikh is amazing, and please pray for him. Please pray for um, you know, his strength, his um, relief, um, his reward, and um, that God will, will help us all continue to make it through this extremely important project. And um, سبحان الله العلي العظيم اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على محمد وعلى اله واصحابه وتوب باحسان الى يوم الدين اللهم يا علي العظيم اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقده من لساني يفقهوا قولي اللهم يا رب اللهم لا تكلفنا الا وسعنا ولا تؤاخذنا بما نسينا واخطانا ولا تحمل علينا اسرا كما حملته الذين من قبلنا ولا تحملنا ما لا طاقه لنا به واعف عنا واغفر لنا وارحمنا انت مولانا فانصرنا قوم الكافرين يا رب ان شاء الله today we will do surah al-mu'minun okay so surah al-mu'minun is elite Meccan revelation. And I think it's fairly well established that it is. Um, among the last surah, not the last, but among the last surah revealed in Mecca, um, it is, Most reports say that it was revealed after Surah Al-Anbiya, which we've discussed. Uh, and Surah Al-Anbiya, of course, was after Surah Ibrahim. So then you have Ibrahim, Al-Anbiya, and Al-Mu'minun. And although this is not certain, but it is likely that it was revealed right before Surah Al-Sajda which uh, we've also discussed. Um, but there's some, some conflicting reports about that. And um, so in order of revelation, it is uh, around 73, 74, 75, something like that. In terms of the order of the of the source. Now, of course, but Surah Al-Munun is, is 
interesting or fascinating in, in, in several regards. And especially that it is revealed at the end of the Meccan period. So we, we by the time Surah Al-Munun is revealed, we already had uh, Surah Al-Kahf, uh, we already had Surah Al-Nahl, we already had Surah Ibrahim. Um, and so if, if one, it is easy for one to miss or to to, to miss what Surah Al-Mu'minun um, adds or, or contributes at this point in the history of the Islamic Da'wah. Um, because it seems to repeat a lot of the same themes that, are, that have already been um, covered in earlier revelations, until you you read the surah itself carefully and you study what the early audience of the Quran, the the companions of Rasulullah anhum themselves said about the surah or the way that they've handled the surah, the way that the surah interacted with their lives. And it begins in a way that will actually be a very powerful indication of the meaning and role of Surah Al-Mu'minun by it doesn't, unlike a lot of the other sort of, the, of that same period, like the Hawamim, it doesn't begin with separate letters. It doesn't begin with a declaration about uh, the Quran itself or about Tanzihullah, um, the, the, the uh, um, uh, glorification and understanding of Allah as the, uh, as, the 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 one and only or a proper understanding of that and sifat um, or even a, a statement about uh, alhamdulillah the, the gratitude to Allah but it starts by talking about believers themselves قَدْ أَفْلَحَ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ so it and remember now, by the time Surah Al-Munun is revealed, we, the persecution of Muslims has reached a height, and the Hijra, at least to Abyssinia, had already taken place, and um, the hijrah although this is not quite clear whether the hijrah to, to medina had already started in 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 micro steps in other words and a separate people have started going to medina or was about to start 
But nevertheless, it's, it's quite late in the process, in the Meccan revelation. So it, it starts out with this declaration about the believers themselves. There are believers who are truly it's like saying there are believers who have tr who are, are are truly successful, or there are believers who are capable of true success, of truly being prosperous, of um, meeting what Allah expects of them. And who are these believers? And the first 10 ayat of Surah Al-Mu'minun responds to this by giving you a fairly succinct list for the terms of this success. قَدْ أَفْلَحَ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ الَّذِينَ هُمْ فِي صَلَاتِهِمْ خَاشِعُونَ وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ عَنِ اللَّهُ مُعْرِضُونَ وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ لِلزَّكَاةِ فَاعِلُونَ وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ لِفُرُوجِهِمْ حَافِظُونَ إِلَّا عَلَى أَزْوَاجِهِمْ أَوْ مَا مَلَكَتْ أَيْمَانُهُمْ فَإِنَّهُمْ غَيْرُ مَلُومِينَ فَمَنِ اتَّغَى وَرَاءَ ذَلِكَ فَأُولَئِكَ هُمُ الْعَادُونَ وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ لِأَمَانَاتِهِمْ وَعَهْدِهِمْ رَاعُونَ وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ عَلَى صَلَوَاتِهِمْ يُحَافِظُونَ أُولَئِكَ هُمُ الْوَارِثُونَ الَّذِينَ يَرِثُونَ الْفِرْدَوْسَ هُمْ فِيهَا خَالِدُونَ So, now, immediately we're struck by a couple of things. That this same list that Surah Al-Mu'minin gives us had already been mentioned elsewhere. These sort of, if you will, these ten... Um, or this list, list of commandments. But here, they are front and center at the beginning of the surah. And if you compare this, if you compare the context of this list to other contexts in which a similar list is mentioned, you find that in Surah Al-Mu'mun, it is very clear that these are the basic elements to be met for one to attain Al-Firdaus. And Al-Firdaus, which is, I mean, there is some disagreement as to the origin of the word. Most say it's Persian, Persian Arabized word. Um, some say it's, it's, uh, it's older than that, it's uh, Syriac Arabized word, but it's likely a Persian Arabized word. But theologically, and by the time the Quran is revealed, it has already moved in Arabic and been in circulation as, a, as an Arabized word for a while. But theologically, it means a high, secure status in Jannah. 
Now, whether you're a, a, a traditionalist that sees this as, you know, um, in terms of material terms, or you are um, a Sufi-esque who sees this in terms of a, a degrees of enlightenment and degrees of security, it is as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, let me put it to you quite simply and quite directly. Here's what you have to meet to be among those who are secure and not in, and as we will see, not in a, an obscure or um, ambiguous status. And what are those elements? Al-Khushu'a fi salah that and again, like elsewhere, especially once before in the Quran, the salah is mentioned at the beginning and at the end. And it's mentioned at the beginning as khushu'ah and at the end it's mentioned as hifaz. So at the beginning, what is mentioned is that when you pray, you are focused in your prayer. And most commentators, say it is the effort and the determination to be focused. So it is not necessarily that you succeed in being focused always. And that is why uh, when even if we pray and we do not, we're not focused in our prayer, even if we drift in our prayer, we don't repeat the prayer. The Prophet there is a hadith in which the Prophet says, don't repeat the prayer um, because you don't know which part that, you know, a, a single instant in that prayer could be what Allah blesses and what Allah accepts. But I think that the gist of that hadith, the meaning of this hadith, because it occurs in different versions and different wordings, is that the point is not to obsessively repeat the same prayer, but the point is to be determined to transform your prayer into a meaningful act, not simply a physical act of, you know, bending and prostrating and getting up and going down and so on. So the first time it's mentioned, it's the khushu'a, it's the, it's the being focused in prayer and the, the second time it's mentioned is the hifaz, meaning that you don't miss your prayers. You are diligent about praying on time without missing prayers. And we've encountered that before. But here, so it is the prayers, second, and is all forms of vain talk. Now, Allah could be black, uh, 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 backbiting, could be slandering, if you backbite people, if you slander people, but Allah could, could also be when you use speech to spread untruth, or to spread suspicion, 
or to spread uh, enmity and hostility. Uh, that's also level. There are people that entertain themselves by gossiping because they, their lives are empty and they need to live exciting drama. And the only way they can live exciting drama is to always gossip about you know, the tragedy that is happening with this person or the tragedy that is happening with that person. And if there are no problems, they create them. And that's love. That's love. Um, love is also laughing or entertaining yourself at the expense of people's own misery or unhappiness. So if you are just talking about the misfortune that befell that person and this person, and you don't have a good intent in your heart, in other words, you don't intend to help, or you don't intend to find help, and you're just gossiping to keep yourself entertained, that's also love. So, I mean, love with Maureen is this remarkably succinct way of saying what the Prophet said elsewhere, that there are so many people who will be plunged in hellfire because of their tongues. You know, they, if it hadn't been for what they spew out, they might have been in a good shape with Allah. But because of, because of the fact that they don't watch their tongues, they're in trouble. Okay, so prayer, what you talk about, and as zakah, and remember again, by the time Surat Al-Mu'minun is revealed, the official legal zakah has not been prescribed yet. What zakah meant and in, in this context is that you are purifying your money by giving. And it is significant that at this stage, and not until Muslims had a state, a certain amount was not set, but it was always heavily emphasized that what you give cannot be, and again, I underscore, should not be, should not be, because this is seriously misunderstood by contemporary Muslims, should not be simply what is excess to you. You should give, in fact, what you want and what you desire. In other words, you should deny yourself to give others. Because a lot of modern Muslims in the age of civilizational decadence, they, they, think that they, that they, they, they think that the official zakah, which is really based on the premise of excess, is the entire ballgame. And that's not true. It's just simply not true. Okay. So... Prayer, Allah, Zakah, that's three, then four, 
والذين هم لفروجهم حافظون إلا على أزواجهم أو ما ملكت أيمانهم فإنهم غير ملومين and they guard their private parts and we said that this means they don't engage in unlawful sexual relations except for who they're married to or who their right hands possess and I said earlier that I I agree with the fuqaha who said that rights hands possess basically means the same thing as marriage. It's, it's not saying there is a category of those you're married to and a separate category of people who your rights hands possess. It is saying either those who you are have been married to officially and technically judicially or those you've been married to through any other means. So, because as we said that at that time, there were plenty of people who were married communally, but, but there were no official register anyway, anywhere of their marriage. And I, and I also agree with those jurists who said that you were not free to, to just sleep around with your slaves without marriage. Um, marriage was, and this is what the Quran itself says, as we will see. I mean, it's not, uh, it's the Quran itself that says that. So, so the proper venue for sexual relations is marriage and a committed relationship in which people exchange vows and are in a covenant with God. Then after that, the amanat and the ahud. وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ لِأَمَانَاتِهِمْ وَعَهْدِهِمْ And the covenant, the amanat and ahud are covenants and promises. That you don't break promises. That people can trust in what you commit yourself to do because that is a, a, a basis for any st stability within any aspiration of any civilizational order. A, a people who don't honor their word cannot have a civilization. It is impossible. It, it is just, you can't build a civilization upon individuals retaining ultimate discretion to do or not do, depending on whether they can achieve an additional benefit or not. The whole idea of law and the whole idea of stability and the whole idea of social unity and social contract is that individuals deem themselves obligated by suffering by something other than pure self-interest. If your mindset is that, yeah, I'll promise, but I always retain ultimate discretion to break my promise, if I can find a little benefit here or there for violating my promise, the reason this is so disastrous, whether you engage in it in a marriage or in commerce or in 
any type of, of intercourse with human beings. The reason it's so disastrous is that you can't build anything. Then society becomes total and absolute chaos. So when you, know, when you make a promise to your children and then you break it, or you make a promise to your spouse and then you break it, the reason it's a big deal is because of the principle. And it cannot be that, and the reason it is, it, it's a big deal is because not honoring promises is anchored in narcissism and selfishness. And that, of course, is an, a, a, a thoroughly disastrous. Um, this is a little bit of a digression, but I, 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 want, I thought of saying it at the very beginning, but, um, you know, um, if you study human conduct long enough and you study the, the, the um, anatomy of civilizations, what makes civilizations come to being and what makes civilizations vanish? And the, I know that a lot of people, once they see that our videos, you know, regardless of what, how, what we're offering about the Quran, regardless of the quality of the teaching that we're offering about the Quran, if they see a woman who's not a muhajaba introducing these halakas, or they see on, uh, as, uh, as um, in the picture that the Usuli Institute sends around a dog, then that's it. Then they're not going to listen to anything uh, that the Usuli Institute has to offer. And that type of um, dogmatism and that, that type of affectations in piety, that type of close-mindedness, when it is coupled with the lack of basic fundamental virtue, like simply the ethic of keeping your promise, whether it was, it's you with your child, whether it is you with your siblings, whether it is your, with your uh, spouse, your business dealings, as something as simple as you say, you know, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow at three o'clock, you honor it. In my understanding of history and my reading of history, these two flaws are fatal to the existence for the possibility of, of the emergence of civilization. A people who are this close-minded, this exclusionary in their approach to learning, this dogmatic and segmented and bracketed in their categorical thinking. So they think in terms of categories and 
have no flexibility of intellect. Um, and at the same time, mixed with the lack of virtue in keeping and honoring your word, they will never, regardless of what, build a civilization. That's just the sad reality of it, is that, you know, you can have as much as many conferences as you want. You can build as many colleges as you like. You can buy as many weapons as you want. You can do whatever you want. But these flaws, in my understanding of history, seem to be lethal. It's it just nothing is built upon it. it. Of course, it really saddens me, because uh, then, then that means Muslims have a very, very long way to go. Because I, I, I you know, you, you see this um, so rampant in so many Muslim circles, and it just, um, I wish it wasn't the case. I really do. So what strikes you about this list other than the fact that we've seen it before, and yet Allah brings it to the forefront in Surah Al-Mu'minun. And it's like Allah is saying, yeah, I, I know you've seen this, but here is the, the same list again, and understand this is the list for falah. This is the list for a Muslim attaining for doubts. And then you reflect upon this list and the thing that's striking about it is that it is a basic list. I mean, it is not, it is not impossible to attain. It's like saying, well, keep your prayer, you know, keep your promises, Don't slander people and don't talk, don't speak nonsense. Don't go around lying or exaggerating or slandering or backbiting. You know, so it's all focused upon, around honor your word. Be a respectable, dignified human being. Don't be sexually promiscuous. You know, have sexual honor and sexual ethics and you'll be fine. So what is being underscored here? Well, there was an anxiety among and this anxiety sort of it 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 um, will confront us again in the Medina period, but in the late Meccan period, there is an anxiety among the various. There are Muslims that have been because of their status, their circumstances, have met intense persecution. There are Muslims that are extremely 
um, devoted that pray most of the day, that are in constant state of zikr, that accompany the Prophet all the time, there are Muslims that are allowed because of their family connections to exist in Medina in a in hardship but not in an impossible situation. In other words, Mecca has tolerated them enough to allow them to engage in trade uh, although they're ostracized socially, their, their families are, are you know saying um, you, you, you have to forget this Islam thing but but their, their businesses have been not closed not been closed down. But at the same time there are Muslims who've been denied any livelihood. There are Muslims who have had to escape Mecca and go to Abyssinia. There are Muslims who've been tortured and even martyred. There are Muslims that accompany the Prophet all the time. There are Muslims who don't. There are Muslims who worship most of the day. There are Muslims who don't. And one of the frequently asked questions, what fundamentally and basically, what does Islam want? Are we all supposed to be, if I put it to you differently, are we all supposed to be Ali ibn Abi Talib? Are we all supposed to be Abu Bakr and Omar? Are we all supposed to be these, these larger-than-life figures that... Um, and that question, by the way, keeps recurring. And as I said, it will come back in Medina. And Surah Al-Mu'noon comes in, and at the very beginning of the Surah, comes and says, and, and we'll connect, you'll see how this becomes very material for the rest of the Surah. But it says, listen, here are the fundamentals of what would make you a sound, solid Muslim. Now, the, 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 you, you know, the, the, the potential is limitless. You can, go, you can achieve much more than this. And you can also, the possibilities downwards are also quite steep. But here's the, the basically what is demanded of you. Okay, and then from that, Surat al-Mu'minun takes us to some of the basic elements about all human beings and remember this phrase, the common is miraculous. One of the biggest problems is, and for it was human psyche, is that just because it is common, remember a lot of these people are demanding, telling the Prophet, give us miracles. And the response of the Quran is, 
The age of miracles is, is, is over. In fact, focus on the common. Focus on what surrounds you. Because the common is miraculous. You human beings sit there, you know, waiting for the, the exceptional thing to happen. But in fact, the exception or, or the truly miraculous is happening all the time. So, and this description of creation, which, that we've created humans from a draught of clay, then we made humans a drop in a secure dwelling place, then of the drop we created a blood clot, then of the clot we created a lump of flesh, then of the lump of flesh we created bones, and we created the bones with flesh, then we brought human beings with, oh, so much which uh, so we, then it, then, uh, I'll come back to this, then it became another creation altogether. This description, of course, I, as I said, I'm not an expert in those who talk about science on the Quran, but I know that a lot, like Dr. Hassan Hathout, Allah who was um, um, uh, what do you call these doctors that give birth, that help? Uh, obstetricians, right? Yeah. And, and uh, an obstetrician, he, I, I would remember him when he talks about this verse and he would say that it, it is remarkable that that description of the development of a, an embryo um, is in a book that was written at the time it was written. And, and if you look at you know, Maurice Bukai's book on the Quran and science, he talks about this as well, uh, as well as several of, you know, any of the, the, the books that deal with science and the Quran. But from a non-scientific perspective, notice that it, Human, it, it talks about the normal development of a human being that they, they go from a blood clot to, to flesh, to bones, and so on. Then it comes to a point and says, ثُمَّ أَنْشَأْنَاهُ خَلْقًا آخَرٍ فَتَبَارَكَ اللَّهُ أَحْسَنُ الْخَالِقِينَ that you have what can be described as biological developments until it gets to a point and then what when the element of life is added it's as if we don't have the linguistic tools to even relate to this to us. So it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala simply says, until it, and then it becomes something other. Now, this is significant if you've read a lot of philosophy 
about the mystery of consciousness. How do we philosophically define consciousness? Because no one has succeeded in philosophically making sense of consciousness. We, we, you can add all the elements that bi of biology and physiology that make cells alive, that, you know, that make cells communicate with one another, etc., etc. But what gels all of that into the complicated bundle that is a human being? Um, and that is, and so this Quranic expression is it's quite amazing, and I've always thought so, you know, Allah Alam, that and then it just becomes something else. It's like saying, it's, it, this is consistent when, when people ask the Prophet about the soul, and Allah responds, tell them the soul, the knowledge of the soul belongs to Allah. You, you just will not understand it. Um, There's a lot that you can say about this, but the, the, the soul is absolutely a mystery. I mean, if you've, if you've ever seen people die or seen corpses and bodies of people after they die, they're not, it just, it's, it's amazing. I mean, the, the minute the spirit leaves the body and it, it just, it's not the same thing. At all, it just—it's as if it's as if something truly magical has left the body, and what is before you is um, and all the you know all the the um, especially in non-Muslim cultures, all the cosmetics that they resort to to try to give the delusion that the corpse is still the same person after death. Um, you know, it, it, it takes such a, a remarkable amount of violence to the body to try to give the, an, an enormous amount of makeup just to try to give the impression for just a short while that this is the same person after the soul has departed. And, and of course it's not, anyway. Um, and then, ثُمَّ إِنَّكُمْ بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ مَلَبَيِّتُونَ After that, this whole miraculous process, the common is miraculous, that takes place all the time with all of you, then you're dead. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Now, this is 17. Okay, the Quran mentions frequently seven heavens, but here it mentions seven pathways. Especially in the Sufi tradition, 
they read seven pathways in an entirely metaphorical sense. And they, they read the Sabah Taraiq as seven levels of elevation. And, you know, I would have, I don't remember the, 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 the seven levels. If, I, if it hadn't been for the illness, I would have looked it up and prepared it for the halaqah. But, Qadr Allah, But what is interesting here is that before I mentioned that although we say Sabah Samawat, seven heavens, it doesn't mean that these are astronomical heavens, but rather that they could be seven ages, seven stages, seven, and it is significant that in Surah Al-Mu'minun, these seven are mentioned, are referred to as Taraiq, and not necessarily skies. Because of the, of course, in the, in the medieval age, there were an attempt to say, well, seven heavens means the seven seen planets on Earth, and their orbit around Earth. Um, but it's not an orbit. Uh, and it's and it's not the seven planet and seven skies. I think refers to something that is not a part of our reality altogether. Um, without even, you know, separate and apart from the Sufi way of reading Sabah Taraiq or seven pathways. Okay, and then after that. Allah reminds us again of the common, and the common is that Allah, this life on this earth cannot be coincidence because it required exactly the right amount of water to stay, not just to come to earth, but to stay on earth. The right amount of water had to evaporate and vanish, and the right amount of water had to stay for life to be sustainable on Earth. And that it takes, you know, a, 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 a certain amount of... Um, hubris to believe that this can just come about by coincidence. Um, and that life on earth, determination of life on earth can become very simple by, by the, the disappearing of this water. Then Allah, of course, reminds us, and this is in, in 19, فَأَنْشَأْنَا لَكُمْ بِهِ جَنَّاتٍ مِّن نَخِيلٍ وَعَنَابٍ لَكُمْ فِيهَا فَوَاكِهُ كَثِيرَةٌ مِّنْهَا وَمِنْهَا تَأْكُلُونَ Allah is reminded that this water produces such an immense variety of produce and وَشَجَرًا تَخْرُجُ مِن طُورِ سَيْنَاءَ تَنْبُتُ بِالْدُهْنِ وَصِبْغٍ لِلْآكِلِينَ 
And this, most commentators says, is a reference to olive trees. Whether Tur Sina here means Mount Sinai, the Sinai that exists in Egypt now, um, or it is because Sina was a word that meant an elevated mountain that could sustain vegetation. So some said, well, no, this is really like, it's the same word like that the, uh, you have in Watini was Atoni Watur Sinin. The word Sinin is the same origin as Sina. Uh, so some said, no, this, this refers to the, uh, Palestine, some said this refers to Sham, some said, no, this refers to Mount Sinai because olive trees uh, initially grew in Mount Sinai and then they were, olive trees were spread to the rest of the world from there. Anyway, um, the, that doesn't change the point itself. The remembrance of what is common to all human beings, the amount of blessings that are presented. Okay. And of course, the often cited example of domestic animals and the fact that, and milk and other dairy products. Okay. And then, so, it gets to this point, and it will talk about, briefly, five prophets. But the way it's going to talk about them is very interesting, and pay careful attention to it. So, first, it mentions Noah. And all it tells us about Noah in Surah Al-Mu'minun is that he... advocated that he called his people to the truth and what was the response of his people is that this is a just a human being like you and what is motivating this common human being is that he wants to be special. So keep this in mind. So then it tells us that So ultimately, Allah sent the flood and supported Nuh salam. And then 29, وَقُلْ رَبِّي أَنْزِلْنِي مُنْزَلًا مُبَارَكًا وَأَنْتَ خَيْرُ الْمُنْزِلِينَ The dua is articulated as if it is coming from the mouth of Nuh, where the, the, the Prophet Nuh says, Allah, ultimately, anzinni munzalan mubarakan. 
allow me, let's see, 29. Yeah, uh, Lord, harbor me, blessed harbor, for thou art the best of harbors. Harbors. Um, yeah, it could it could be translated this way, but in Zindi Munzal and Mubarakan, it's like saying, Allah, protect me until I reach, the, make the end safe and blessed. Now, this dua is although it's it's. It's said as if it's articulated in the mouth of Nuh but it is a beautiful dua. Remember it. Someone wants to join? You see, you guys see? Um, it's a, it, it is as if telling Allah, take my hand till the end. Take my hand till the end and make the end safe and secure. And zinni munzalan mubarakan. Wa anta khayrun munzaleen. Okay. Then it tells you, and then after that, we created several generations, centuries and generations of people. ثم أنشأنا من بعدهم قرنا آخرين فأرسلنا فيهم رسولا منهم أن يعبدوا أن يعبدوا الله ما لكم من إله غيره أفلا تقول it doesn't tell us who these prophets are or these prophets were or who these people were and in the in a lot of the تفسير you know they they start speculating well this must mean that this is قوم عاد this is قوم ثمود this is قوم this this is قوم that the point is that in Surah Al-Mu'minun, Allah doesn't tell us. Allah simply says, just understand there's a common process here. I send a prophet, people confront the messenger and say, who are you to be telling us to live differently? You are just but one of us or one like us. And they turn away, and then Allah sends another messenger. Okay. And وَقَالَ الْمَلَأُ مِنْ قَوْمِهِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا وَكَذَّبُوا بِلِقَاءِ الْآخِرَةِ نُؤَطْرَفْنَاهُمْ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا مَا هَذَا إِلَّا بَشَرٌ مِثْلُكُمْ يَأْكُلُ مِمَّا تَأْكُلُونَ مِمَّا تَأْكُلُونَ مِنْهُ وَيَشْرَبُ مِمَّا تَشْرَبُونَ so, and with each successive generation, we confront the same problem, is that people say, this is just a common human being. He eats like you eat, drinks like you, you, like you drink. Pay attention here to وَأَطْرَفْنَاهُمْ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا That وَأَطْرَفْنَاهُمْ is a remarkable expression it, it, if you want the most literal way of translating it is and we spoiled them um, if that was the most that would be the most literal way 
Yeah, the, the study Quran says we had given them luxury in the life of this world. But Wa'atarafnahum doesn't even need to be luxury, but it, it's those who taken blessings and gotten accustomed to it that they've taken them for granted. So those who have been given blessings and they've now have taken these blessings for granted and it's like saying to us again it is as if pointing our attention do you notice how the very common theme is developing throughout this this whole thing is that as if there's nothing new under the sun you have a a a, a, from the Quranic perspective, from the perspective of, of the divine, a very repetitive and dreary process. Human beings want the exceptional. Oh, why don't you send angels? Why, why are these prophets just like us? They want the exceptional and they don't notice that the exceptional, that the common is exceptional. That the miracle, it surrounds them every single day. Every time when someone is born, that's the miracle. Every time they, they drink a glass of milk, that's the miracle. Every time they eat cheese, that's a miracle. Every time they eat a fruit, that's the miracle. They, they fail to notice all of that. And they take everything for granted, for granted, and they constantly say the same dynamic of, where is God? We don't see God. We don't feel God. Where is God? Okay. Then, one of the most, uh, when you get, and it's emphasizing that sort of, it's, it, it gives you, if you're, especially if you memorize Surah Al-Mu'minun and you're reciting it, and then you come to Ayah uh, 36. This expression, Hayhat, Hayhat, it absolutely conveys this sense of, wow, this old story has been going on for generations. It's like, you start feeling like, God, it, 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 from, from, from the, the Malakuti perspective, from the perspective of high above, this is really tedious and boring. People are always, making such a big fanfare about the idea that resurrection, accountability, and, but yet it is so also obvious, also common. Okay. So then you get Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala again underscoring In 42, that you 
generations come from generations and generations come from generations and each generation has the same dynamics and the same processes each generation thinks that their claims their arguments are highly original highly unprecedented but it is the same old same old okay ثم ارسلنا رسلنا تترى كل ما جاء امه رسولها رسولها كذبوه فاتبعنا بعض فاتبعنا بعضهم بعضا وجعلناهم احاديث فبعدا لقوم لا يؤمنون okay so we've sent this is uh, uh, 44 so we've sent messenger after messenger after messenger arsalna rusulana tatra tatra means one just a, a, one after the other like a sequence but human beings do the same thing they're very boring they keep doing the same thing again and again وجعلناهم احاديث Now that's one of these you know there, there are certain expressions in the Quran where you just tell yourself okay you know the, from a believer's perspective it, it, the author of the Quran it, it cannot be human from even just a, a literary critic say they, this is such the author of the Quran is an exceptional perspective وَجْعَنَّهُمْ أَحَادِيثِ uh, 44, let me see how the study for untranslated made them objects of stories okay, وَجْعَنَّهُمْ the study for said says, and made them the objects of stories that sort of kills the um, the, 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 the energy out of it, you know وَجْعَنَّهُمْ أَحَادِيثِ meaning like um, it's like we know that human beings retain out of the same di- repetitive dynamic whatever they want to retain but the reason we keep repeating this narrative again and again is it's as if saying so that the story will spread to preserve a kernel of truth which is an amazing just amazing way of saying it it's like saying you know I just wanted to achieve narrative saturation so I can preserve a kernel of truth. Then, so, so far we had Noah. We've, told, we've been told about generations and centuries. And then after Noah, who's mentioned Musa and Harun. 
So Musa and Harur are, again, we're told they were sent to Fir'aun. The problem with Fir'aun is that they were Qawman Alin. They were haughty, arrogant, oppressive people. And they responded to Musa and Harun by saying, فَقَالُوا أَنُؤْمِنْ لِبَشَرَيْنِ مِثْلَنَا وَقَوْمُهُمَا لَنَا the only variation here is that they saw Musa and Harun as belonging to an inferior people. So they said, they're humans like us. But although they recognize them as humans like them, so it's not like uh, the colonial, uh, the white race that didn't recognize slaves as as human, but thought of them as subhuman. No, in the case of Musa and Harun, their oppressors recognize them as human, but nevertheless, they are a deeply classist society and also a racist society, and so they, they didn't think that these humans are entitled. But, but fundamentally, the core thing is that they're unhappy with the fact that Musa and Harun are common human beings just like with Nuh. Then from there, it moves to the third prophet, Isa salam, and Maryam. And here, it doesn't even name Isa. It says, وَجْعَنَّا إِبْنَ Maryam وَأُمَّهُ آيَةً وَآوَيْنَاهُمَا فِي رَبْوَةٍ ذَاتِ قَرَارٍ وَمَعِينٍ That the son, and normally when the Quran wants to give an example of, and this is by the way, those who said that Maryam was a prophet often point to this fact that when the Quran wants to give a quick example using Jesus, it will always say Maryam and her son. But when it wants to focus on the legacy of Jesus, especially the whole thing about the crucifixion and, and so on, then it will refer to Isa ibn Maryam. And so those who said that Maryam is a prophetess, they said, well, the, the Quran seems to deal with Jesus and Maryam's equals, like as if they're both, anyway, that, that's from a different set of texts and different discussions. Okay. So with Isa, with Maryam and her son, السلام, what the Quran emphasizes in Surah Al-Mu'minun is their common humanity. So, Ya ayyuha rusulu, kulu min tayyib, min al-tayyibati wa amalu saliha, inni bima ta'amaluna alim. Eat from my blessings and do good because I am your Lord and I know what you do. Okay. But then, وَإِنَّ هَذِهِ 
أمتكم أمة واحدة وأنا رب ربكم فاتقون. so fifty two the Surah Al Mu'minun presents us in this sort of narrative about the about how prophets come they they are accused of being just like everyone else just human and they're denied as a result then it comes and says but i want you to recognize that all this commonality successive generations repeated patterns repeated problems the way human beings have reacted time and time again and will react is because or points to a fundamental and necessary and basic fact you people are but a single ummah and I am your Lord so heed me now why although you are a single ummah you don't act like a single ummah and Surah Al-Mu'minun comes and tells us something else about the common human being فَتَقَطَّعُوا أَمْرَهُمْ بَيْنَهُمْ زُبُرًا كُلَّ حِزْبٍ بِلَا بِمَا لَدَيْهِمْ فَرِحُونَ I send the same basic truth, but you, common human beings, love to have camps and to break into teams and to break yourself into tribes and groups and factions and then you love to argue about how you're right and others are wrong and what adds to the problem is that those of you who are given a lot a lot of bounties those of you who found and find themselves doing well thriving financially materially you think that just because you are richer and more powerful at this point in history, you start thinking that that means you're closer to God than the others. That this necessarily means that God loves the white man, God loves the Indian man, God loves the whatever man, you know, or God approves of this group, God approves of this group. you don't realize that this is all has nothing to do your your material success has nothing to do with whether actually god agrees with you or disagrees with you and with this challenge that you are but an ummah a single ummah and i am your lord fattakun so heed me Okay.
And then the Quran takes you back and says the crux of the matter is that those inna alladhina hum min khashyatin min khashyati rabbihim mushfiqun walladhina hum biayati rabbihim yu'minun walladhina hum birabbihim la yushrikun walladhina yu'tuna ma ma والذين يؤتون ما أتوا وقلوبهم وجلة أنهم إلى ربهم راجعون that takes you back and then says the issue is those who enjoy what they enjoy or the, the challenge is to enjoy what you enjoy but you are always God conscious. In fact, with a level of reverence and a level of fear and awe of your Lord. There is a hadith that Aisha asked the Prophet about these ayat 57 and 58 and 59. والذين يؤتون ما أوتوا وقلوبهم وجلة أنهم إلى ربهم راجعون. and she says to him so those who do what they do while their hearts are in a state of وجل وجل is in study Quran it translates it as a heart's quake. Yeah, I mean, a, a reverence of your Lord. I, I, it's not your heart's quake. Ilwajal is, um, is that you, 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 you got conscious. So it's not that you are frozen with fear, but you don't take God for granted. So Aisha asked the Prophet, she says, is this talking about that uh, people who commit sins and yet remember, so those who drink alcohol and fornicate and but then remember God and so they fear God? And he said no. Uh, uh, the Prophet said no. It's talking about those who do good. They, they, they do the good they do but they are constantly conscious that they take, can't take that good for granted. So in other words, humility. You, you, you don't start thinking that you're fine with God just because you do the basics. One of the important reports narrated in, in a in a number of versions, all very close to each other, is that Aisha um, when she is asked about the character of the Prophet, the people who had not met the Prophet, would ask her uh, how was his khuluq, how was, were his ethics, his personality, his manners, and she would 
always refer them to say and say, haven't you read the first 10 ayat of Surah Al-Mu'minun? That was his character. And that only underscores, because we've encountered these, that same list before, but in Surah Al-Mu'minun, it is put front and center, and it is underscored that if the believers want to understand the standard, here's the standard. Another uh, um, thing that I forgot, um, in verse um, 52, no, sorry, uh, verse 51, يَا أَيُّهَا الرُّسُلُ كُلُوا مِنْ طَيِّبَاتِ مِنَ الطَّيِّبَاتِ وَعَمَلُوا صَالِحًا إِنِّي بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ عَلِيمٌ يَا أَيُّهَا الرُّسُلُ كُلُوا مِنَ الطَّيِّبَاتِ وَعَمَلُوا صَالِحًا Now, of course, this is saying, addressing itself to messengers, and saying, messengers of God, كُلُوا مِنَ الطَّيِّبَاتِ Eat from what is good, and do good. Because I know, I observe you, and I see all. Now, it would seem rather obvious that the prophets of God would only eat from what is good and would only do good. So, what is the point of saying this to the prophets of God and in the ayah that comes right before, And this is but, your ummah is but a single ummah, a single nation. Um, well, this particular ayah, ayah 51, the Prophet ﷺ comments that what Allah commanded for the prophets is what Allah commanded for all believers. Inna Allah amara al-mu'mineen bima amara bihim mursaleen. And then he, Allah, then the, the Prophet ﷺ recites uh, th this verse that what Allah commands for the prophets, Allah commands for believers. And then the Prophet ﷺ elaborates by something that becomes an ethical principle. يَا أَيُّهَا النَّاسِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ طَيِّبٌ لَا يَقْبَلُ إِلَّا طَيِّبًا Understand that Allah is good and Allah does not accept other than what is good. And again, this 
51 comes right before telling us that you're a single nation. There are commentators like Ibn Arabi from the Sufi, uh, Sufi tradition and like Qadi Abdul-Jabbar from the rationalist tradition who looking upon this said, well, to say God is good and only accepts what is good begs the question of what is innately good. And then to say this is but a single nation, meaning humanity is a single nation, then it is an invitation for humanity to ponder what goodness unifies all of us. That the challenge is yes, as we saw in Surah Al-Kahf, there will be those who are so backwards that they, they live in caves. They have no comprehension, no understanding. But that exception doesn't set the standard. And there is a decency that unites human beings, that human beings are bound to understand and discover. And that this decency already the constituent elements of this decency was introduced to us in the beginning of Surah Al-Mu'mineen. Decency must necessarily include commitment, promises, covenants, truth, because speaking untruth is level. To, to, to speak falsehood, to say, to disseminate false information, to speak lies, to speak only what serves your interests and to ignore what doesn't serve your interests is all a form of level. So that fundamental anchoring in decency, as we will see, is very critical for the rest of what's going to come. Okay. So now let's go back to where we left. Uh, so then, in verse, uh, 61. Those who are have God consciousness, those who don't take God for granted, those who do not simply presume that just because we are doing what we believe is God's commands, that then God will overlook. In fact, they have a further characteristic. Yusari'una fil khayrat. Now, if only if Muslims just reflected on just this one expression. Yusari'una fil khayrat, meaning 
they hasten to do good. For Khayrat, it's like everything that is benefits other human beings or benefits animals or benefits nature is Khayrat. So if you as the Prophet taught us that if you clean the road, that's Khairat. If you fill a pothole, that's Khairat. If you help an animal, that's Khairat. If you feed the needy, that's Khairat. You they, they it's not that they do good. No, they 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 race to go good. They actually race to good to do good. وَهُمْ لَهَا سَابِقُونَ And they do good as believers before anyone else. Now, so many, like Imam Ghazali says this in Al-Ahya, uh, um, Ijilani says this in several of his writings, and Imam Al-Muhasidi says this in several of his writings, that the characteristic of the common Muslim, the Muslim that Allah wants to see, is that they do good before anyone else. They don't wait around to be, to be told this is good and then they do it subsequently. They actually are at the head of the curve. وَهُمْ لَهَا سَابِقُونَ Explicitly. Before anyone else. Why, why am I underscoring this? Because when I remember, mentioned in a khutbah in the past, that for instance, uh, when, when France started discriminating, now it's gotten even worse uh, against muhajrabas, it last people to, to respond were Muslims. I mean, it's remarkable. The same Muslims who won't listen to, to a halaqah just because there's a woman introducing the halaqah who's not, doesn't have her hair covered. These same Muslims are so disconnected from the logic of the world that the fact that the European Court of Justice just issued a judgment saying that it is lawful in Europe, now, all over Europe, it is lawful to fire a woman for wearing the hijab. All those kids, these punks, who say, oh, we're not going to listen to Haqqa because a woman doesn't wear hijab. Of course, you can't expect, they don't lift a finger. Because hijab is about controlling women for them. It's not about vindicating the rights of women to seek employment. It's about oppressing and dominating and shaming and controlling and degrading women. And so they, they, they'll invoke it when it's part of privileging the male dominion, but they won't care if Muslim women all over Europe are being losing their jobs because they're wearing the hijab, they don't care about that. 
because it doesn't it doesn't stroke their their Muslim their male ego to 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 say anything about that. That is why, Wallahi alazim. That is why Allah will not bless us. Understand the take the, the Quran is so clear. It it couldn't have been clearer. They compete, they hasten, they race to do good, and they're ahead of anyone else. When I say, how many times have you guys heard me talk about how I got involved in the human trafficking field, and I became very active in the human trafficking field, and I got that because as a Muslim, and then I look around me and I see no Muslims around. And if there's a Muslim that I meet every once in a long while, there is secular Muslim who, you know, have nothing to do with Islam anymore. And then I even worse, I even discover Muslims from certain institutions in the US that are so backwards and primitive and pig-headed that they actually sit there and say, what does that mean, human trafficking? You know, in other words, try attempting to be smart Alex and deconstructing the idea of human trafficking under the delusion of defending the Islamicity of slavery as an institution or something like that, or sexual exploitation or male dominance or exploitative hegemonic institutions of power. I mean, it is un incredible, incredible. Okay, but then Subhanallah. Remember, Surah Al-Mu'minun started out with. Here's the basics for a Muslim. Then took you to the prophets and how they're accused of just being common people. Then it took you towards a remarkable challenge in saying understand that the path of God is a path of decency and understand that so much of what divides you human beings is vain and unreal and has nothing to do with goodness if you want to understand the path of God compete with one another, race to do good, and be ahead of the curve. Then it comes and says, But there is a rule with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we don't demand that a soul bear more than its capacity. This is repeated five times in the Quran. This same phrase, that Allah doesn't ask the soul to bear more than its share, its capacity. Five times in the Quran. The way the Quran is organized today the last time it is repeated is in Surah Al-Mu'minun. 
If you study each time this is underscored in the Quran, it always comes after Allah demands that you be at the cutting edge of doing good. But it is as if Allah comes and strokes your back and says, but it's okay. If you truly have that desire and you're truly making an effort, I understand if it doesn't work out the way you would like it to work out. I understand what your limitations are. Don't make excuses for yourself. Let me make excuses for you. Don't go around saying, I can't. You try. But trust. Don't beat yourself. If you are unable to do everything you want to do, as long as your intention is in the right place. that meaning we your, the book with Allah the, the, the here come, some commentators said the book that is being referred to is the Quran that as you struggle with what you can endure and not endure your 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 constitution in life is the Quran some said no this doesn't refer to the Quran, this refers to the record of your deeds. That Allah has a book that is meticulous in its justice. A book that cannot, cannot die, you know, does not record a lie. Has no lie. Okay. So, And then Allah takes you back to something that the Quran repeatedly, again, in this Quranic theme in, in Surah Al-Munun of redundant courses of action, is that human beings, although these are the ideals that they're taught, they so often do not live up to these ideals. And especially those, and this is the second time the expression mutrafihim is mentioned here in Surah Al-Mu'mineen, those who have become spoiled, those who take what they're given for granted. And the minute Allah lifts Allah's mercy. Allah constantly intervenes to prevent people from suffering the consequences of their vanity, of their very poor decisions, of their inequity. And when Allah lifts the divine hand, Allah's hand, and as a result, they suffer the consequences of their deeds. They 
immediately start wailing to Allah, why are you letting this happen? Why is this happening? Why are, why are we suffering so much? But whether this is taking place in the hereafter or taking place in the here and now, in both cases, Evil deeds have evil consequences. Injustice begets injustice. These, this is what you've earned. Don't come, we've given you ample opportunity. If you were truthful with yourself, you would realize that we've given you, that Allah doesn't just give you a day or two. God gives you years and years of opportunity. And when it comes to communities and nations, God might give you centuries of opportunity. But when the hammer falls, the hammer falls. قَدْ كَانَتْ آيَاتِي تُتْلَى عَلَيْكُمْ فَكُنْتُمْ عَلَىٰ آقَابِكُمْ تَنْقِصُونَ مُسْتَكْبِرِينَ بِهِ سَامِرًا تَهْجُرُونَ This is 66-67 Yeah, I don't like the translation so much. Okay. So, My ayat, my signs, and remember, of course, we all know that ayat could be the verses of the Quran or any ayat, any signs by which Allah communicates with human beings. And they were presented to you consistently, but you always ignored them. Mustakbirina biji, samiran tahjurun. This is one of the most amazing expressions. The way it's, it's translated in the, um, in the study Quran, um, waxing arrogant on account thereof, talking foolishly by night. That doesn't sound very eloquent at all, obviously. But when it's mustakbirina bihi, that it's, it's a remarkable way of, of even in two words drawing an entire picture that you will, it's like saying the way you, you responded to the consistent messages of Allah is in a sort of pompous way in, in which you are not um, necessarily saying everything what is in your heart. So in other words, you're, you're not like looking like a like an, an uh, 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 like a, an outright tyrant. But effectively, what you're doing is you look down on these ayat. Like you, you, they come to you and you snub your nose at them. Like oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I hear you, I hear you, but. 
uh, there's things that we have we we need to worry about. It's as if they're beneath you. Samiran Tajurun that you through your vain conversations, your vain discourses. It's a remarkable picture. It's as if through your, the vanity of your discourses, you encouraged one another to completely ignore all the means through which Allah communicated with you. Samiran Tehjurun, it like gives the, the image of people sitting at night chatting, but chatting one another to be arrogant and haughty and to ignore all appeals for goodness. So, you know, if, if, if you see these high-class parties where people are um, uh, schmoozing, um, what do you call that when rich people circulate with them? Schmooze? Is it schmooze? Yeah. Oh. Uh, schmoozing, you know, and engaging in small talk and whatever, but they're, they're pumping one another up their egos so that they continue to feel, uh, you know, we're, we're above it all. Then a set of rhetorical questions until um, until we get to verse 70, you know, haven't they, don't, don't, haven't they received the message? Uh, they've always, they, in fact, the problem is that in your hearts, you dislike the truth. The truth bothers you. You don't want to hear it. Not because you're better, but because it makes you uncomfortable. In fact, Allah then reminds us that if Allah would follow the vanities of the powerful if Allah wouldn't restrain, if Allah in fact didn't intervene all the time to prevent the vanities of the powerful from taking over. the heavens and the earth would have been destroyed. Um, I'm going to see how the study Quran translates this part. 17 one, um, 
were refused to follow their captures, the heavens and the earth would have been corrupted. They even gave them their reminder, but they turned away from their reminder. Yeah. Um, This is a little bit challenging. So 71 says, بَلْ أَتَيْنَاهُمْ بِذِكْرِهِمْ فَهُمْ عَنْ ذِكْرِهِمْ مَعْرِدُونَ The study Quran translates this that, which is the sort of the, the, the most direct way of translating it. Um, but it, again, it, it sort of just takes out all the subtlety from it. Um, nay, we gave them the reminder, but they turned away from the reminder. There is a lot of ways, if Allah wanted to say, we gave them the reminder, but they turned away from the reminder, there's a lot of ways that Allah could have said that, other than what actually is said in the text. But أَتَيْنَاهُمْ بِذِكْرِهِمْ فَهُمْ عَنْ ذِكْرِهِمْ مُعْرِضُونَ It is not أَتَيْنَاهُمْ ذِكْرَهُمْ It is not that we brought them the reminder but أَتَيْنَاهُمْ بِذِكْرِهِمْ فَهُمْ عَنْ ذِكْرِهِمْ مُعْرِضُونَ Which this way I can, I can sort of do it justice is we in fact approach them and talk to them with all the reminders that are specific to them that are most direct to them but they're obstinate. So it's like saying, it's like saying, you know, I've tried to reach you through all the ways that I know would appeal to you, but you just don't want to listen. Seventy-two, or is it that you are? Uh, yeah. So the study Quran just uses the word the compass. Khorjan. Uh, or is it that you are asked them, is it that you ask them for compensation? So is it that, you know, it's a rhetorical question again. It's like, you know, none of the prophets not demanded anything that would enrich them. Okay. وَإِنَّكَ لَتَدْعُوهُمْ إِلَىٰ صِرَاطٍ مُسْتَقِيمٍ In fact, 
Then now, the, now Surah Al-Munun sort of shifts in talking to the Prophet والسلام, and is saying, Allah knows that you are indeed calling them upon the straight path and, and And in fact, those who don't believe, they, they constantly resist the straight path uh, until we get to verse 76. You notice that and we Part of the messages of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is hardship. That when we send people hardship, this is a message. It, maybe people will come to their senses when they see that, you know, they're hit by an earthquake, they're hit by a plague, they're hit by a pandemic, they're, they're hit by whatever, a, a a train disaster that exposes the corruption and the inequity and the injustice in society. But sadly, the rich always escape responsibility and the poor always take the easy route of not wanting to resist so that they just bury it under the rug and keep going. There is in narrative, um, but that took place, although it is sometimes, some sources say it's an occasion for revelation, it could not have been an occasion for revelation because the history doesn't work out. As, as I said, Surah Al-Mu'minun is a Meccan surah, um, but Verse 76 has played a role in, in an incident in Islamic history um, that you should know about. That after the Battle of Badr, um, this is after the Hijrah and there is a battle in Badr, one of the, um, one of the people captured in the Battle of Badr was a man called Thumama. Thumama ibn al-Athal. Um, Thumama is, uh, he is treated so well as a prisoner of war and then ultimately the Prophet pardons him and frees him. And Thumama is so impressed by what he saw in Medina among the Muslim community that he converts to Islam. Thumama was from the tribe of Bani, Banu Hanifa. And Banu Hanifa inhabited an area called the Yamama. And Yamama is an area known for its uh, fertile uh, soil and farming. And the Yamama had a major business of exporting um, corn to Mecca. So when uh, Thumama converted to Islam and he saw 
And he knows what Mecca had been doing with Muslims and the fact that Mecca was, you know, sworn enemy of Muslims and all of that. So he, when he gets back home, he convinces his tribe to cut off trade with Mecca, to no longer export their produce to Mecca. As a result, that led to a severe rise in the price of grain in Mecca because Mecca now was forced to import grain from further away places, a severe rise in the, in the price of grain and severe shortages in Mecca. So Muawiyah at the time, he was of course not a Muslim, travels to, um, to Medina and begs the Prophet, although they're enemies, but begs the Prophet to speak to the people of Yamama so that they will restore trade with them. Now, this is, although, you know, the, the Meccans had persecuted Muslims, had, had stolen all the, 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 the properties that belonged to Muslims, everything. And When, and Muawiyah tells the, the, the Prophet, you know, have mercy upon your people. Now, it's very interesting because at that point, the Prophet could have said, okay, fine, I'll talk to your mama to restore trade, but as long as you give us back the properties that you've taken when we migrate from, from Mecca, because in fact, the Meccans stole all everything the Muslims left behind. And in fact, uh, uh, the Meccans, one of the things they did is that they told Muslims, you can do a hijrah, you can leave to Medina if you want, but as long as you leave everything behind, as long as you don't take your money with you, don't take your furniture with you, don't take your pot. So uh, uh, when Muslims migrated to Medina, they were destitute. But what is fascinating is that the Prophet ﷺ, in fact, spoke to Thumama and told him, convinced him to restore trade with Mecca. Now, so several commentators said that this verse, 75 and 76, were saying, look, even when we've you know, sent hardship to Mecca, um, i.e. they lost the trade with Yamama and they experienced hardship, they still remained sworn enemies of Muslims. They still didn't relent. It's obvious, yeah, these verses apply to the situation, but to say that they're an occasion for revelation is it doesn't there's no support for that uh, other than the fact that these verses seem to apply to the situation so these verses were not revealed in, in Medina and they were not revealed on the occasion of that incident but most definitely it is clear that some Muslims recited these verses 
recognizing that, look, you know, even when we restored the trade and helped out Mecca, they still remained sworn enemies. And in fact, prepared for the Battle of Uhud, which followed shortly thereafter. Am I, did everyone understand what I said? Okay. Look at 77. حَتَّى إِذَا فَتَحْنَا عَلَيْهِمْ بَابًا ذَا عَذَابٍ شَدِيدٍ إِذْ هُمْ فِيهِ مُبْلِسُونَ There is an interesting discussion about this verse. Many commentators, especially traditional commentators, say that what this verse is saying is that when these kuffar, or these iniquitous people, unfair people, unjust people, uh, in the hereafter confront severe punishment, they will stand completely lost, wondering what to do. It's like being frozen in fear. It's like saying, you know, oh my God, this turned out to be real. We're in deep trouble. What do we do now? Other commentators said that the context of this verse 77 indicates that a, if you will, a, 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 another meaning to it or another level of meaning that Allah saying that those who have, who go down this path of injustice, not taking heed, not listening to Allah's warnings, eventually their path leads to consequences that before they even have to deal with the hereafter, eventually the consequences lead to severe trials and severe tribulations. And when the severe trials come and the severe tribulations that are a result of their own injustice come, they become completely lost. And they blame their loss on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But if they looked honestly at themselves, they would realize that Allah bailed them out time and time again, but that these severe trials and tribulations are a result of their own injustice or the, their own failure to prevent injustice. And now that they confront the consequences, they sink deeper into confusion rather than achieving any level of illumination. Okay. Then this will take us to the next, the, the, from, from 77, until, um, let's see, what was it? Um, 
until 90, there is a discourse with, that applies particularly to Meccans who believed in a God but didn't believe in a resurrection. And of course, by extension, it believes to every Muslim or every believer, not just Muslim, but every believer who doesn't take the idea of resurrection seriously. And say, you know, you, you don't have a problem in believing that there is a creator who actually created you, but you have a problem in, in believing that this creator would be a just creator. The, the, a just creator needs accountability. So you want to believe in a creator, but you want to believe that this creator is unjust, that this creator sends his only son to suffer for the sins of people so they can be forgiven. And as long as you accept the son and his suffering, then your sins are erased while <coughs> that's not justice. Or that this creator picks its chosen people, and as long as the chosen people, uh, you know, uh, what, whatever, that God is with them, but with them especially more than any other people, that's not justice. Or that you believe that God just allows bad deeds to go unanswered and good deeds to go unanswered without compensation. Uh, and so uh, that all of that are in themselves a form of incoherence. That although a lot of commentators say that this applies to the Meccans, but it, it can easily apply to any people who don't take the idea of resurrection very seriously. Okay. All right, now, قُرْ, قُرْ. Now, when we, we know that when, it's, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says قُلْ, then Allah is demanding the attention of the Prophet and his followers. قُلْ رَبِّي إِمَّا تُرِينِي مَا يُعَدُونَ رَبِّي فَلَا تَجْعَنِّي فِي الْقَوْمِ الظَّالِمِينَ وَإِنَّا عَلَىٰ أَن نُرِيكَ مَا نَعِدُهُمْ لَقَابِرُونَ Okay, so now Surah Al-Mumunun is reaching its conclusion, which I, I will go back and wrap up for you, but just bear with me. So now that we've taken you on this, this, this journey, this discourse, say we recognize that Allah can either make us see the consequences of this moral lesson with our own two eyes in our lifetime or not. Or it could be, as we said, space and time belong to God, not to us. But in all cases, this wonderfully succinct and beautiful dua Rabbi fala tajanni fil zalimin. In all cases, don't make me in the camp of the unjust. 
Allah is always capable of showing you this, this entire dynamic in which bad, bad actions have bad consequences and good results in good. Allah is capable of demonstrating this before your eyes. But this is not what Allah chooses if Allah doesn't choose us. Choose it. So, idfa billati hiya ahsan. As-sayyi'ah. Nahnu a'lamu bima yasifun. So, what do you do? Address bad deeds with goodness. وقول ربي أعوذ بك من همزات الشياطين وأعوذ بك ربي أن يحضرون We pause here because of the, the significance of this. So time and space belong to God. Allah could fast track the entire dynamic of justice right before your eyes so that you see but that's not iman when you say i will believe allah but i want life to be in good like a movie it has a beginning and it has a happy ending that's not iman iman is to say allah i recognize life is not a movie and I might not see the happy ending in my lifetime, but I believe, because I believe your word. And because I believe in your word, I have a principle, Allah, and the principle is don't make me among the unjust. Because I know, Allah, that injustice is so tempting to pull you to become unjust. Most people are unjust not because they like to be unjust, but because they have a victimhood narrative. They believe they've been victims of injustice. So that justifies their injustice. That's why you pray Make me among those who can actually persevere. And although they suffer an injustice, they're not going to be pulled into injustice. Okay. Because there is a principle. The only response to evil is goodness. Wrong doesn't beget wrong. Immorality cannot be answered by immorality. That's how the devil wins. What do demons want? Demons want you to do precisely that. Demons come and say, you've been wronged, so it's okay. You've been wronged, so do what is wrong, you're justified. وَأَعُوذُ بِكَ رَبِّي أَنْ يَحْضِرُونَ But there is another thing, and that is the world of the unseen. 
You don't see it when demons gather around you. You don't see it. But just because you don't see it, it doesn't mean it's not a reality. Demons indeed do gather around human beings, do become attracted to evil human beings, to evil deeds. They are so attracted that they, they, eventually a human being can become as if a demon. They exude demonic energy because of how often demons hang around this human being. So it is imperative that your prayer be It is imperative that you consistently pray to Allah, keep them away from me. Don't make me don't make me attracted or don't make me uh, um, um, drift into committing the type of things that attract demons and even if I make a mistake please keep them away from me because that's that that's going down the path of ultimate decay and remember وَمِنْ وَرَائِهِمْ بَرْزَخٌ إِلَىٰ يَوْمِ يُبْعَثُونَ And remember, this is verse 100. And remember that uh, the study Quran just says, and behind them is a barrier till the day they are resurrected. And remember that in the same way that Allah tells you there is a world of the unseen, well, this world of the unseen, we call it the barzakh. The barzakh means the world behind the veil. It's another dimension among the dimensions of existence. In, these, the, in this dimension are the demons, are the jinn, in the same or in different dimensions are the angels. But remember that after death, between resurrection and death, is that are these dimensions behind the veils. And you, if you are smart, you don't want to spend the time between your death and resurrection in a tormented state in that world of Barzakh. Because the torment doesn't necessarily even need to be Azab al-Qabr as so many Muslims believe the torture in, in, um, in the grave. Because that, that's a different theological question. But to be conscious and alive in some form without your body, but trapped by demons. It's hellish. You don't want. And so, do you know that you know, this whole 
human consciousness that says rest in peace. Because not resting in peace, resting or not resting, be, be, being dead, but being left to the province and the domain of demons is, is not where you want to be. You want to be protected in Allah's mercy, in Allah's blessing. Then, then it will start talking about that the, 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 when the resurrection comes. But first, there are some that I think are very useful to learn. Um, the Prophet ﷺ, when Surah Al-Mu'minun was revealed, and that dua, وَقُلْ رَبِّ أَعُوذُ بِكَ مِنْهَ مَذَاتِ الشَّيَاطِينَ وَأَعُوذُ بِكَ رَبِّ أَيَّحْضُرُونَ Of course, a lot of Muslims were worried. So they understood that the battle was evil. It's all based on your own volition, on your own will, whether you surrender or you don't surrender. But that once you've invited evil, evil responds, evil accepts your invitation. Once you've opened the door, and the more evil shares your space, the harder it becomes to extract yourself. And so, of course, what, what you'd expect happen, happened, and that is they went to the Prophet and asked them for help in dua to protect themselves. And he, the Prophet taught them the following dua. He told them to repeat it often at a minimum every night before they sleep, but Every time they, they, they feel that shaitan, that they're being, they have evil thoughts or that they are experiencing temptation or that they want to break their word or they want to not honor their word or they are engaging in level hadith, in vain talk or they're engaging in lies or they're speaking falsehood to repeat this dua. And dua, the dua says, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim a'udhu bi kalimati Allahi tamah min ghadabihi wa iqabihi wa sharri ibadih wa minha madhati shayateen wa ayya hadiroon. Ibn Umar No, that's Ibn Amr, it, was not, it wasn't Ibn Amr, but Ibn Amr used to teach this to his children and he um, would wrote it on pieces of parchment and he would hang it around his children's neck until he became satisfied that they, um, they memorized it and internalized it and were repeating enough. 
بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم أعوذ بكلمات الله التامة من غضبه وعقابه وشر عباده ومن همزات الشياطين وأي يحضرون um, There is another dua that uh, the Prophet's wives, three of them reported that the Prophet والسلام, would repeat frequently um, before saying before saying وأعوذ بك من همزات الشياطين وأعوذ بك ربي أن يحضرون The Prophet would say اللهم زدنا ولا تنقصنا وكرمنا ولا تهنا وأعطنا ولا تحرمنا وآثرنا ولا تؤثر علينا وردنا وَرْضِنَا وَرْضَ عَنَّا And then he would say وَأَعُوذُ بِكَ رَبِّي مِنْ هَمَزَاتِ الشَّيَاطِينَ وَأَعُوذُ بِكَ مِنْ هَمَزَاتِ الشَّيَاطِينَ وَأَعُوذُ بِكَ رَبِّي أَنْ يَحْضِرُونَ اللهم زدنا ولا تنقصنا وكرمنا ولا تهنا وعطنا ولا تحرمنا وآثرنا ولا تؤثر علينا وردنا ورضى عَنَّا That's the dua. It's a beautiful dua if you memorize and repeat, inshallah, bring blessings in your life. Okay. So, then, Surah Al-Mu'minun takes you with the natural conclusion to the journey, and that is speaking of hellfire and the consequences so this is, of course, from the from after the speaking about the barzakh. So from one hundred one uh, to one hundred five or one hundred four. Okay. So I'm not going to comment about this because it's it's what we've encountered many times before. But then we come to this expression which deserves pause. أَلَمْ تَكُنْ آيَاتِي تُطْلَى عَلَيْكُمْ فَكُنْتُمْ بِهَا تُكَذِّبُونَ Rhetorically, Allah is asking people who are in hellfire, didn't you receive my ayat? And you've denied them. Now, note, and this is the only time that this response is given in the Quran. قَالُوا رَبَّنَا غَلَبَتْ عَلَيْنَا شِقْوَتُنَا وَكُنَّا قَوْمًا ضَالِّينَ So their response is غَلَبَتْ عَلَيْنَا شِقْوَتُنَا This is 106. Our study Quran says, they will say, our Lord, our wretchedness overwhelmed us, and we were people astray. Okay. Shikwatuna is not wretchedness. غلبت علينا shikwatuna. And I'll explain why this response is given in Surah Al-Mu'minun particularly. What they're saying is, Allah, what? 
the, 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 what happened what as ex, an explanation for us going astray is that we drifted into wrongfulness. So a shikwa is um, the tendency towards unruliness or the tendency towards wrongfulness. So if you're saying غلبت علينا شكوتنا is like saying the reason we went astray is that our feet were, were, we were pulled in. It's like our feet were we were, we were trapped into wrongfulness step by step. So, and that's why they're, they're saying, Allah then take us out of it because we're not, we're not bad people. We, we were just sucked into it. Take us out of it and if, you know, we act you discover that we, we were unjust, then, then punish us. And, of course, predictably, Allah's response is, It's too late. Don't even talk to me. Okay. Just, I'm going to explain why this response is sort of in, in, in a second, but I want to reach the end first. And why is it that it's not as simple as saying, yeah, okay, yeah, I understand you, your feet were, were, were just, you know, you were pulled in. It's because there is justice to account for. There were people who, in fact, stuck to the right path. There were people who did the right things. And you've made these people suffer. You've either made their suffering suffer, whether directly or indirectly, is beside the point. But the point is, is by giving prevalence to the logic of wrongfulness, to the standards of indulgence and heedlessness, those people who want to do right and live a disciplined, principled life, found it very difficult, had to suffer a great deal to do so because there were so many of you and too little of them. Okay. And then Allah takes you back to this point the fundamental problem is that human beings don't understand that for creation to make any sense whatsoever, there has to be accountability. And for there to be accountability, there has to be resurrection. Otherwise, Allah would be unjust, which is impossible. 
and otherwise Allah would be vain, which is impossible. فَتَعَالَ اللَّهُ الْمَلِكُ الْحَقِّ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا هُوَ رَبُّ الْعَرْشِ الْكَرِيمِ And of course, as Surah Al-Mu'minun brings it back to that this entire logic of creation is under Allah's province and control. And a Rabb who is forgiving وَقُرْ رَبِّ اخْفِرْ وَرْحَمْ وَأَنْتَ خَيْرُ الرَّاحِمِينَ That if you are smart, you will surrender yourself to a God who is forgiving, merciful, وَخَيْرُ الرَّاحِمِينَ And the most merciful of all. Okay. So now you step back from Surah Al-Mu'minun and say, Okay. So we've, we've encountered at this point several of the Quranic revelations in the mid-Meccan period, in the late Meccan period, and some of these messages, like Surah Al-Kahf for instance, are quite layered and quite deep and quite complicated. Well, I mean sophisticated, let's say, not complicated, because I, I actually don't think they're complicated, but they're sophisticated. But what is Surah Al-Mu'minun then saying? Well, it starts out with just believers. And it gives you the, 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 the heart and soul of what you need to be a good believer. And then it tells you prayer, this, this, and very simple. And then it tells you, mentions again the prophets that we've encountered before many times, but here it, is in, it emphasizes that they were just common people, average people. Then it comes and says, there is you know, this commonality is actually precisely what makes you, as human beings, share common characteristics. So much so that all the recipients, all believers are a single ummah, not just Muslims, but all believers but they disagree, they split and splinter apart, they create enmity and animosity and so on for reasons that have to do with egoism, that has to do with vanity, that has to do with mythology, that has to do with... But it is... But there is a fundamental core to good to, that unites all of you, and that is the nature of goodness. Then you step back and say, so who, who celebrated or who did interacted with Surat al-Mu'minun the most? And 
if you do your homework, the answer becomes, starts emerging quite clear. That it is, it is what I hinted at at the very beginning. You don't need to be superheroes. You don't need to be a Ali, a, a Imam Ali or Abu Bakr or Omar. You don't need larger than life figures. What you need to be is common, decent, human beings, i.e. common, decent believers. And if you stick to this code that is at the beginning of Surah Al-Mu'minun, you are fine in this world and in the hereafter. Because as the revelations were coming with Surah Al-Kahf and Surah Al-Ahqaf and Surah Al-Nah. You started, several believers started experiencing anxiety and going to the Prophet ﷺ and saying, this is it's like in our, in our language today, this is nuanced, this is complicated, this is layers. And Surah Al-Mu'noon came in and basically said, the hero is the most common human being. The, in the same way that Allah coded the miracles in the commonplace, in the, in the, in the repeated pattern, the hero is that common human Muslim who lives immoral, ethical life. Surah Al-Mu'minun also was among the surah that was especially loved by the Ahlul Sufwa the people in Medina who were from lineages that were not prestigious, many of them were former slaves, many of them were very, were very poor, and they would say Allah vindicated us with Surah Al-Mu'minun, that it's as if Allah said, here's the importance of the common person. And that was indeed the impact of the Surah that you don't need to be a great brainiac, you don't need to be a great hero, you don't need to be the building bricks of a moral order is the average common human being. And that's Surah Alhamdulillah Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Um, uh, I just I, I want to express my profound thanks and gratitude. Um, you know, when 
like this surah I see as just so um, singularly powerful in uniting humanity. And it's like not even, um, you know, when you start putting all the different pieces together and the idea that God just keeps coming again and again and again from the very beginning has been telling us, hey, people, you're all one and you're the ones that keep creating divisions. And, you know, there's a common goodness between you. Um, and, you know, these are the basic things that you need to do. You don't need to be superheroes. You just need to all be decent. It opens so many um, beautiful, like, questions, of course, you know, like, especially now when we live in a time where it's so hard to be Muslim, number one. Number two, it's so hard to, for people to even get past Islamophobia to think about what it could be that Islam has to offer. And then all the questions about interfaith marriage and all the questions about, you know, um, who goes to heaven. I mean, you, we've touched upon all of these things, but when you like really boil it down to what this particular surah says, it's, it's like we're one humanity. We're all together in this. We're the ones that keep making it so difficult for ourselves. And that um, it's, it's so, like, even if we, you know, not even to think about, you know, like, our, our non-Muslim friends, you know, if we just start by cleaning our own house, and it's like, how many divisions are there among Muslims? Like, all the answers are here for us to get along. But then if we can even get past that, you know, like when you think about, you know, your non-Muslim friends, your non-Muslim family, your, you know, even Muslim friends and family who don't really believe, like, just how powerful this particular surah is. And, um... You know, of course, Inshallah, we'll get to this, but there, um, because some theologians had a hard time reconciling Surat al-Mu'minun with uh, later ayat on jihad and things like that, these, the, uh, the, you find among the traditional scholars that then say, oh, th this was abrogated. Uh, so that some of them even uh, ended up saying pretty much half of Surat al-Mu'minun was abrogated. And that's absurd. And I think that in my, in my view that that is not taking the Quran seriously. Uh, surah like Surat al-Mu'minun, all the surah, they, they came to build upon one another. And like everything else that you learn in, in, in law or in philosophy, in the discipline of, of philosophical thinking or in the discipline of jurisprudential thinking, if you have general principles that are enunciated and then later details then the, the later details are, and later details apply to special exigent circumstances, then the later details must be understood in, in ways that are not inconsistent or that do not invalidate the general principles enunciated earlier. And inshallah, we'll see this. So the surah, like Surah Al-Mu'minun, and like a lot of the Meccan surah, 
came and say, here, here, here's, here's the, here's the, here are the principles that you are supposed to aspire for. This is what we want. This is the trajectory for humanity. This, this is the moral lesson for human beings. And of course, then there are different things in, in the Medinian period that come up that require that Muslims respond in this way or in that way and, and so on. But I think it, it, um, it does a great injustice to the Quran to then imagine that the specific legislation that was articulated in response to specific problems that arose in Medina were intended to abrogate all the earlier Medinian, Meccan revelation, uh, that just simply, uh, it, it, I mean, it's, underst it's understandable from a historical perspective because these Muslims lived in an age where Muslims were a dominant, powerful empire. And so they could afford to, uh, you know, say, well, we should, should, we should act like a powerful people. But, but uh, it becomes extremely dangerous when you lose sight of the foundational principles. You lose sight of the moral philosophy that that explains the entire message. And that's very important to just keep in mind. Um, but you're right. I mean, uh, uh, with all the things that the Meccans have done to Muslims, with all the, the, the horrible um, injustices and so on, and yet, even then, the Quran comes and says, you can't answer an injustice with an injustice. You cannot answer an evil with an evil. And nothing in the Medinian revelation, nothing abrogates that or is even inconsistent with that. And it's very sad when, when you find um, this just the, 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 the carelessness by which some scholars resorted to the logic of abrogation and started declaring this abrogated and that abrogated and this abrogated. It's just, um, yeah, it's very unfortunate. Um, let me start with asking you the vicar for the surah. Yeah, the, the, um, the vicar is, uh, they are um, 97 and 98. قُلْ رَبِّ أَعُوذُ بِكَ مِنْ هَمَزَاتِ الشَّيَاطِينَ وَأَعُوذُ بِكَ رَبِّ أَيَّ حَدِرُونَ And then um, I was also had asked you beforehand, you had mentioned the dua um, towards the end, um, but you only said it in Arabic, the ones oh. that the Prophet Muhammad has suggested. Yeah, the first dua, بسم الله أعوذ بالله بكلمات أعوذ بكلمات الله التامة من غضبه وعقابه وشر عباده um, Bismillah, in the name of Allah, the most merciful, uh, the most merciful, most compassionate. I also be kalimatillah tamma 
I seek refuge in Allah's perfect words. Min from Allah's anger or Allah's displeasure. Waqabeh, and Allah's punishment. Washarrabeh, and the the evil that others are capable of. Wamin hamazat shayatin, and from the whisperings of demons. Wa'ayyahdurun, or from the presence of demons. So that's the first dua. The second dua that the Prophet would, would say uh, is Allahum zidna walatun qusna. Allah give us and don't take away from us or cause us to increase, increase in goodness, increase in knowledge, increase in, in, in everything that is good and not the opposite of that. Allahum zidna walatun qusna. And honor us and don't cause us to be humiliated or degraded. Um, don't and give us and don't deny us. And make us special to you, preferred to you, not and don't prefer others over us. Um, and be accept us and cause us to be accepting. And then the Prophet would say, and I seek refuge in you, or I seek your protection from the whisperings of demons, or from demons being present, or the presence of demons. Thank you. Did you have a question Talking about Netflix with my friends, consider level. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Like, you just sit around and talk about Netflix shows. I don't think so. I think, I guess it depends on what Netflix shows you're talking about. You know, if they're, if they're bogus Netflix shows, then yes. If, they're, if they have a point, like actually Netflix shows that teach you something or you know elevate you somehow I'm, I'm okay yeah, yeah alhamdulillah um, regarding disbelief in Allah being a form of injustice because the the verses where you're talking about how uh, the way you explained it was that the people who who in the final day will make ex the excuse that we're not unjust, you know, we just we fell victim to our yeah. our injustice step by step, we're like, you know, we're not bad people. Yeah. But it seems like it's adding a, a nuance to what injustice is, that it's not just the fact that 
you did injustice, but it was your decisions affected people and made it more difficult for people who are trying to be on the straight path. Yeah. So is, I guess my, how, I mean, how far can we take this? Because, I mean, should this be put, it's, I mean, like, take the, the example of, of interfaith marriage, for instance. Mm -hmm. You're, usually, I mean, I don't want to give a blanket statement that everyone is making it out of selfishness. But usually it's, I found someone who's really good, but isn't it even just considering the fact that, okay, but you're, you're taking partnership away from someone who might be Muslim, someone who might actually be um, on the path to, to please God. Um, so, I mean, is this giving us a new criteria for how, what we should prioritize that everything is a is about trying to make the path for those who want to serve God easier, and that is a new measure of of ethics, or what is considered ethical. Well, it is. It's not a, a new one. It is. It is. Can you paraphrase the question for those who didn't hear? Paraphrase. The the I guess the the question is is this this the say علينا that when did when those who end up not saved respond that we were overcome we're not bad people we're overcome by by um we, we were dragged we, we sort of slipped into it we we were um and and i said that Part of the response, part of the response is that there were others that persevered in the straight path and that your decisions ended up making it difficult for them or, may, or ended up uh, uh, making the, tra the trajectory for goodness more difficult because you sided with the wrong things. And she was saying, well, you know, is this adding like a, a more a consequentialist view of things? Like as you think of whether your decision is ethical or not ethical, moral or not moral, you have to think, well, what if everyone does what I do is it going to ultimately add to the it, it, it ultimately the consequences are going to have um, be harmful for believers or harmful to the to to the realm of the ethical and as a result then you refrain or not refrain from an act depending on sort of Seeing the 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 the, the um, uh, overall impact of your decision, even though if your decision might be not directly harmful to those uh, immediate to you, but in the larger scheme of things, it could indeed be harmful. So then it would be an immoral decision, even though 
in your immediate circle, there were no immoral consequences that you could see. But overall, in the long term of things, in fact, it would lead to immorality, so it is immoral. And my response is, it is not a new way of seeing things. It is a more complete way of seeing things. Because indeed, to, for proper moral thinking and proper ethical thinking, you can't just look at the consequences of your actions in your immediate circumstance. You, you have to always weigh that against the, um, with, with that question, well, what if, if everyone did what I did? What if everyone imitated me? What would be the results? And you have to weigh that against uh, what is the import of what I do? What precedent do I leave? What does it teach others? What example do I set? Um, that's part of a complete way of, of... Now, here's the thing, though, is that it's like saying, you know, I, I might know the immediate consequences of my actions with some degree of certainty, but I might not know what will be the consequences of my actions um, in the remote future, or as to, you know, people that come generations after me. So what do you do? Well, what would make you in relative safety if you have proper consciousness and fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if, if I, you know, um, I do my due diligence and I resist the, the temptation to just say, well, I like it, so I'm going to do it. But you, you, you do your homework, you think of, of all the various consequences and results and so on. And ultimately, you, you say, oh, well, you know, you surrender yourself to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In, in other words, you say, Allah, I've done my, my, the best. I, I've, I've thought of as much of the consequences I can think of. This is my, ultimately, this is my, my ishtihad in, 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 in my own personal situation. Uh, Allah, if I'm wrong, please forgive me. That's very different than those who just act heedlessly without much, um, you know. Allah doesn't expect us to always be right but Allah expects us to make every effort to be right. And that's, that's what is your safety net, is to say, I've tried my best. I, I really did. And, and I fought against my selfish urges and, and, and just being self-centered and self-referential. 
it wasn't just about me. I actually tried as much as I can to think of, you know, everything. So, غلبت علينا شقوتنا. I mean, it, it's it's really talking about this type of heedlessness where people make excuses, but Allah knows that they're exactly that. They're just excuses for being self-indulgent and not really being serious. Just as a follow-up question to the English translations of the Zohar, um, from Enjan Jazakallah, Professor, for continuing to make the effort to bring this wealth of knowledge to us. Um, God grant you afia and health to continue this. My question is, is it still powerful in warding off evil or shayateen to say the specific du'as you mentioned in English for those who cannot say them in Arabic? For those du'as from the Quran, um, does it reduce their power if said in English? If if it's uh, saying the du'a in English is much better than not saying it. Um, I mean, I, I personally, especially du'a that is very uh, Quranic du'a, um, in other words, ayat from the Quran, it's always better to say it in Arabic. Um, but if you are, you don't, you don't, you know, if you don't know the Arabic or if it's hard to learn the Arabic, to, to say it in Arabic, then it's much better to say it in English than not to say it. And uh, when you seek refuge in Allah, especially from shayateen in any language, Allah responds. You know, it, it, it especially, and even, um, you know, some sometimes even when people seek Allah in the, the protection from of God from demons in uh, in ways that are not really appropriate, still often God responds because demons are arch enemies of human of human beings. And Allah's mercy um, often precedes everything. So don't hesitate to seek refuge in God, in, from, especially from demons, even if it's not in Arabic. Um, okay, and I, this is, uh, Huda had asked a question on the interactive, um, and, I, and Huda, I asked the uh, professor, before we started, the question about the, the seven levels of elevation in the Sufi tradition, and I would love to know the answer to that too. But he didn't have a chance. He mentioned earlier to, um, you know, to check that or you know prepare with that. So maybe we can hold off on that one. Um, and instead, I actually have been holding in my mind a question you had asked back a few weeks ago. So I'm going to replace your question with that one if you don't mind. Um, and I thought this was really in line with kind of what you were just saying before. Um, this is more of a reflection than a question. I have been wondering, how can I be truly ethical in every way possible? Driving a car can contribute to global warming. Filling up on gas can make corrupt oil companies further profit. 
How do I know the people at the clothing factories of which I ultimately shop from were treated fairly? How do I know the eggs I purchase are ethically raised? I'm feeling overwhelmed and not sure how to be as ethical and just as I possibly can be. Um, this is, she said, you don't necessarily need to respond. It was, it's just a large topic, but she's often, um, these are the kinds of thoughts that arise from, from these sessions. Um, just thought you yeah, you know, it, uh, you see, uh, ethical, uh, ethical consciousness—it's—it uh, um, um, doesn't mean that you become fro frozen with an obsession and inaction. What it does mean is that you remember that the that that the most baseline of iman is to condemn what is wrong in your heart even if you're unable to change it um that's a and b to do what is possible within the within your circumstance. So if, you know, if I am ethically conscious and I see a label of um, clothing, one in which I, um, I know is a country that has a human trafficking problem and a second label of a country that is, has a better record in human trafficking and although the country that has a better record in human trafficking, their product might be more expensive, I make the ethical choice to buy from a country that has a better human trafficking record. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that before I buy anything, I must go and research a dissertation that, that you know and that's exactly what Allah says Allah doesn't want you to bear what more than you can endure um, but then the way an ethical project works while you have a general ethical consciousness about many issues perhaps even most issues you then consult your own talents so that you focus on actually making an ethical, meaningful ethical contribution to one or two issues that Allah directs you to. So I can't make a difference on every front, um, but I choose my ethical jihad by saying, Allah, you know, I, I know that there are a lot of wrong things and I wish I could be active in saving whales. I wish I could be active in, uh, you know, those who do fair hunting and cruelty to animals. And I, I wish I could be active on so many issues, but I, I, I can't. So. I will do what is best within my abilities on 99% of issues. But then I pick specific issues where I demonstrate 
a meaningful moral commitment on those specific issues. And I, and I choose them, in my case, I choose them uh, in, in part in response to what I thought are of particular interest to me, in part in response to what my own uh, deficient thinking led me to believe are priorities over others, in part in response to what Allah facilitated before me in my life experiences, in other words, who Allah allowed me to meet, the, who I connected with in the field of, um, you know, doing good. Uh, there are some places where I would have liked to make a difference, but I've never met anyone that I could work with. And then other, you know, and that's what in Allah means. It's not that. Now, of course, this is what I also would like Muslims to realize is that just to be a Muslim and to understand that the, to, to, to actually believe as Muslims that the world lost something by Muslims being so weak and so defeated that if Muslims were not so weak and not so defeated, maybe then that to believe that Islam would have made a difference in having more light shine on this earth than currently exists. That's A. But B, if the answer that you give to yourself is that if Muslims were more dominant or less defeated, more light would not shine, then to become conscious, then that is, is a very, very serious problem. And it means that our relationship to Islam is highly problematic. The beginning of the road to healing. And, and you know, if that's all you learn in this entire journey, is that the beginning of the road to healing is that we must correct our relationship to Islam because Islam is not about, you know, how, how we, we, we stand in line or how we separate between men and women in Jum'ah or in Eid or... It, it, not, Islam is not about all the pietistic affectations we engage in night, in, night and day. Islam is about, it's not about benefiting God. God doesn't gain anything from all our displays of piety that you know all our beards all our hijabs all our that it is about bringing luminosity goodness to the world that consciousness just by that if you can teach it to one person in your lifetime then i accept i, I pray that allah accepts you in a very special status. Okay, so we have time just for one one last question, which I asked if you'd be willing to. Uh, about the, the the Sufi thing, by the way, the the maqamat. Um, I, I didn't uh, because of the the illness situation. We we sort of agreed after discussions and all that is that I 
I do the Holocaust sort of from memory um, and, and, and not spend time like I did preparing because I would prepare on. But anyway, but inshallah, I mean, I can inshallah, I'll, uh, these are fairly easily accessible and so I can get them uh, inshallah and I can, talk, I can talk about them in, in one of the future halakhas. Okay, so just um, in, in regard to um, the principles at the beginning of the surah, when we talk about, you know, no unlawful sexual relations, um, you know, either with who you're married to or who your right hands possess, um, just wanted to ask the question regarding temporary and secret marriages, which seems to be something that plagues modern Muslims a little bit. Um, but you said you had some a comment that you might share with regard to that. Yeah, you know, of course, it's a big topic, but we have we have to um, um, secret marriages. The the biggest problem with secret marriages is that um, they often fail to guarantee the rights of husbands and wives and children. Um, what I've seen happen in the Muslim community, and not just in the West, but also in overseas and so on, is that um, people engage in, in secret marriages, and uh, then when the marriage dissolves, in other words, there is a divorce, or, or in, in the parties go, I've even seen a lot of situations where the, the, the people don't even bother getting a proper termination of their marriage just because it's not public. So, you know, it's like no one is sure if they're married anymore or not, and they just go their separate ways. And that's, of course, a problem. Um, or I've seen, I've been involved in actual litigation where, um, they, you know, they, they live together, they incurred common debts, and then one, one side just goes off and reneges on any like, responsibility for the debts incurred. And then you have to go to court. And I mean, of course, it, they, they usually try to resolve it amicably, try to get imams involved. And we have a very nasty habit that imams side with whoever they're friends with instead of with justice or truth or anything like that and then you know you uh i in secret marriages again i've seen situations where people got pregnant and i've seen abortions which is highly problematic because the marriage is secret and i've seen um situations where um, a child was actually born and then the husband says oh i was never married to her and tries to you know uh, and so uh, now the pro the issue with secret marriages is that there is a there is a juristic debate whether anam is a condition of the marriage everyone i mean uh, uh, publicity is a condition of the marriage or not um, 
the technical issue is you, you have two witnesses. Okay. But are the witnesses without publicity sufficient? What you mean is it what does it mean to say you have two witnesses but then tell the witnesses but don't tell anyone? And that's a technically juristic, there's disagreement among the jurists about this. And um, I personally think publicity is a condition, but there are a lot of jurists who said publicity is not a condition. Um, that it is adequate to have witnesses. Anyway, so that, that's one thing. Uh, temporary marriages are a very complicated issues in um, in in proper jurisprudence. In there are the majority of Shiite jurists allowed it under certain conditions and circumstance. And it's again, it's a technical juristic debate. The majority of Sunni jurists did not allow it, um, and the whole argument is, uh, is as to whether it was allowed at one point and then got abrogated. But again, you know, temporary marriages in countries like uh, Iran, in countries like Egypt, uh, which in Egypt they just call it Jawaz al-Masyar instead of temporary marriages. I mean, Sunnis do it. They just change the label and call it Jawaz al-Masyar. But it is Jawaz al-Muta. And, you know, the, as if changing the label actually is going to fool God. Uh, it's amazing. But anyway, huh? Can we just take a step back? Because, you know, when usually when people hear temporary or secret marriages, it sounds very bad it sounds like there's something wrong like why would you even do that like why is are they okay you know for people who are not familiar well i mean people engage in secret marriages for a variety of reasons but and this is and temporary marriages again for a variety of reasons but here's the thing that i come back to in countries like egypt like uh, uh, iran like uh, pakistan uh, both secret marriages and temporary marriages are often accompanied with highly exploitative circumstances. In other words, it is often rich, powerful men that, if for all practical purposes, buy women. And I think we have to stop having these technic highly technical arguments and get to the ethical question. When these institutions are platforms for exploitation of women, especially young women, especially women from very poor families, they're immoral. And I don't think law should be used to justify them. Um, it's a different matter when the power dynamics are equal. And it's a different matter when it is a, they are a result of um, variety of circumstance. And then the, the fatwa in this situation can be responsive 
to the particular circumstance that arise in a particular situation at a particular time. But when they are platforms for wide-scale exploitation and abuse of human beings, as is currently occurring in so many Muslim countries, then they're, 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 no, matter, no amount of law can make the abuse of human beings justified. Um, but to relate them to the, what your right hands possess, it is one thing for me to say, I wouldn't recognize this marriage. And I think it is sin sinful to enter this marriage. But it is quite another to then say that because I do not approve of the marriage, then the, what people have engaged in is fornication. The legal principle is that any error in procedure or process or evidentiary standards will be used to remove the stain of um, of fornicate of zina although the act remains sinful because there was because people might have done it under a mistaken legal belief that what they did is halal, then they still committed a sin, but it doesn't, it's not a sin that rises to the level of fornication. I know this is, this is a, a sophisticated legal thinking. This is the, the way Islamic law actually works, that you might if you enter into a marriage, you believe that marriage is valid, but you later on realize that the marriage you entered into was indeed not valid, then although you might be, have, still have committed the sin of not adequately having researched or succumbing to certain weaknesses or, or what, what, whatever, but the fact that you believed it was a valid marriage will mitigate your responsibility for actual zina, which is a very big deal. And we, as Muslims, we, we are not eager to condemn people for the, for the crime of zina. So an erroneous marriage, and that's where precisely your right hands possess becomes in handy, especially these marriages that, you know, so I, for instance, when I was in LA, well, uh, in the old days, when I first came to the United States, I came to the, the in Los Angeles um, and discovered so many people in the youth group had engaged in secret marriages. You know, everywhere I turned, someone was secretly married to someone. 
Now, do I come and declare all these poor people fornicators and all of them are zuna? I pray to Allah that the answer is no. And I told him that I, you know, and this is precisely what I told him, is that I think the marriages you entered into are flawed and you have to repent for the sin that you've committed. But the fact that you received bad advice or the fact that you just opened a book of Islamic law and didn't have the competence to deal with these legal issues and helped yourself into, into a secret marriage, um, it, it doesn't mean that you are fornicators. But failure to correct your flawed marriage is a continuing sin. Now, of course, you know, as because you're in LA and everyone is arrogant and pompous and no one, you know, everyone thinks they know better. No one listened to me. And, you know, but it doesn't matter. You know. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> okay, on that hopeful note. Um, thank you so much for being with us and joining us. And um, Alhamdulillah, thank you for really, you know, pushing so hard to be here to, to give us this knowledge. Um, inshallah, um, I hope that it's just Saturday. Hopefully, inshallah, um, you guys will enjoy the rest of your weekends and we look forward to seeing you on Tuesday, inshallah. Thank you, everyone, and thank you for coming and salamu alaikum. Nice to see you all.